Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Sohil Hussain. Dr. Hussain is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Director of the Extragen Pancreas Research Program at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh of UPMC. Dr. Hussain, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. So I understand that your primary interests are in pancreatic issues. That's correct. I spend about 75% of my time thinking about that and probably 100% of my off time thinking about it as well. Let's begin with what's the magnitude of the problem? Oh, it's it's a great problem. Uh, I have the privilege of thinking about the problem of pancreatic disorders, specifically in children, but the work covers all ages. The biggest and most impactful issue or problem in pancreatic disorders is a inflammatory, very painful disease called pancreatitis. In fact, it ranks among the most painful diseases known to people. It is life-threatening. In about one quarter of patients who are affected, they develop severe disease, and about 10% of them may succumb to death. And the interesting, very sobering point is that we've known about pancreatitis for over a century, and yet we still do not have, in 2017, targeted therapies for the problem. So it's a problem in children as well as adults? That's correct. Uh, Children succumb to pancreatitis uh, just like in adults. The reasons for pancreatitis, however, in children are much more proportionally varied. And they include problems that are common in adults, such as bile duct stones or gallstones in the bile duct of the patient. That's the number one cause in most cohorts. The other reasons for pancreatitis in children include trauma to the abdomen, such as from motor vehicle accidents, bicycle injuries, and so on. A third leading cause is medications. Medications that children take for various other problems that, however, have the side effect of pancreatitis. And then the list goes on. It includes problems such as metabolic disorders that cause pancreatitis, such as high triglycerides, diabetes. There are genetic disorders as well. So your initiative is to come up with new therapies, or is it prevention? Both. In fact, we'd like to do both. As a pediatrician, of course, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. And so for all ages, we would certainly like to prevent pancreatitis. And that's an active area of my work. And the second is to treat it. In fact, if I were to break down what I am actively currently engaged in, there are three broad areas which I'd be happy to tell you about. Yeah, please do that. Certainly. That third leading cause of pancreatitis, drug-induced pancreatitis, it really is, for all ages, a black box. In fact, for no one drug do we understand the reason why patients develop pancreatitis. There are speculations for some, and for most, we don't even have a clue. And so we decided to address this issue by going after one of the primary 
drugs involved in causing pancreatitis, and that is a drug that is given as the primary treatment for the cancer acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common cancer in children. And this drug is called asparaginase. Interestingly, asparaginase has been with us for decades, and it is the mainstay for the treatment of leukemia of this type called ALL. And the sobering news is that upwards of 16% of patients, depending on how you define pancreatitis, will develop this painful inflammatory affliction by taking this drug. And so we are very focused on understanding why that happens, the mechanisms underlying the predisposition to pancreatitis in those patients, and we are in the process of performing a large-scale metabolomic screen of children who have received the drug and developed pancreatitis compared to those children who received the drug and never developed the problem. And at the end of this exercise, we're hopeful that for this metabolic drug, this drug that affects metabolic pathways, that we will be able to uncover some of the reasons. At the very least, we will develop biomarkers. And that's one active area of interest. The second is about pancreatic recovery and regeneration after the injury of pancreatitis. So it's a yin-yang. Think of it as a problem in which the pancreas develops major injury, you know, with pancreatitis. And yet the yang is that the pancreas has a large capacity to recover and regenerate in virtually every experimental model of pancreatitis we see a high degree of regeneration, and we believe that this happens in people as well. And we'd like to understand how it happens. We'd like to understand the factors that allow it to happen, and we'd like to enhance those factors. And so we started off by thinking about the fact that many of the native cells within the pancreas, both the epithelial cells and the mesenchymal cells undergo a dynamic transformation during this recovery regenerative process. And often when you see dynamic transformations of cells and then reversion back to their original state, you think about changes that occur not just along the sequences of genes in our chromosome, but these dynamic changes are often conducted by epigenetic changes or changes that are resulting from very complex proteins that affect how these genes are transcribed. And so we decided to examine that, and we were able to show that, in fact, one important protein in this epigenetic complex that mediates the dynamic transformation of these cells during regeneration is the histone deacetylases. And as a result, we are actively pursuing how histone deacetylases allow that transformation to take place. And the hope is to be able to exploit them for therapies that will overcome the inflammatory injury. And through this exercise of discovery, we've also stumbled upon some important findings with relation to 
the new pancreas, after it's recovered and regenerated, we think that it has special properties that we'd like to understand so that the organ and person, when they receive the same hit or a similar hit that would cause pancreatitis to them, their pancreas behaves differently, is somehow protected. We'd like to understand that, so we'd like to harness that protection. The third area of active interest has to do with the molecular pathways that initiate and transduce pancreatitis. And uh, this has been the area of work that I started about 16 years ago. And I was interested at that time in the phenomenon that had been known for decades, which is that aberrant intracellular calcium pathways within the pancreas seem to initiate and then transduce the inflammatory change in pancreatitis. And what we first went about doing was we showed that there were some critical calcium channels that mediated the aberrant pathways compared to the physiological calcium pathways. And then more recently, we, in fact, serendipitously stumbled upon the finding that an important calcium target of this aberrant calcium pathway is a calcium-activated phosphatase called calcineurin. And it's great to be here at the University of Pittsburgh because calcineurin inhibitors were heavily tested for the first time in organ transplantation here. And so much of my current work has been to examine the role of calcineurin in mediating pancreatitis, and specifically calcineurin that is expressed within the epithelial cells of the pancreas. And this has led us, very interestingly, to look at prevention. So to circle back to that first question about prevention, we have recognized that there are some forms of pancreatitis that are highly predictable, and they include pancreatitis that occurs after a common GI procedure called an ERCP. It's an endoscopic procedure in which the endoscopist will cannulate the bile ducts and sometimes the pancreatic ducts and will inject radiocontrast into the pancreatico-biliary tree in order to visualize the anatomy or most often to identify gallstones which can be extracted. And this procedure is often life-saving. And at the same time, it actually can lead to pancreatitis in about 3 to 15% of individuals, not a small number. And we'd like to figure out how to prevent that problem. And while there are some recent preventative strategies that are currently employed, it certainly hasn't gotten rid of the problem. The problem still exists, and it's an iatrogenic problem. And so what we've recognized is that if we were to treat our preclinical models of post-ERCP pancreatitis with these calcineurin inhibitors, we can actually prevent the pancreatitis. And so that has led us to devising a novel formulation that is undergoing very stringent preclinical testing. This novel formulation is a combination of calcineurin inhibitors along with the radiocontrast, and it is simply 
a substitute for the radio contrast, and we believe that this will solve the problem of post-ERCP pancreatitis. What it's also led us to think about are devices such as pancreatic duct stents, which are used to alleviate the problem of pancreatic duct tension that develops after procedures like an ERCP, and this type of tension leads to post-ERCP pancreatitis. And what we have devised is a pancreatic duct stent that is coated with the calcineurin inhibitors. And a third area, which is a much, much larger space, is that this work in the pancreas has spilled over to other areas in that radiocontrast is really a big problem in a large number of people because upwards of 40 million people undergo intravenous radiocontrast exposure, for example, for CAT scans every year in the United States alone. And they succumb to problems, particularly the problem of radiocontrast-induced kidney injury or nephropathy. And we think that uh, this discovery in the pancreas may be applicable to preventing radiocontrast-induced nephropathy. So this area of looking at aberrant calcium pathways has really been very fruitful. This is very interesting. Let me, let me make sure I understand one point. I believe I understand that the radiocontrast agents can prevent pancreatitis or they can cure it, which is it? So the radiocontrast agents seem to be a primary problem in causing post-ERCP pancreatitis. They're also a primary reason for developing kidney injury during CAT scans. Mm -hmm. And we believe that this pathway that we've uncovered with uh, calcineurin through a calcium-mediated pathway seems to be particularly important in mediating the injury, and therefore calcineurin inhibitors of these pathways are promising drug combinations with the radiocontrast to prevent both the pancreatic injury as well as the kidney injury. So Dr. Hussain, uh, I understand uh, from what you said that radiocontrast agents can be the source of the problem. Do you believe that your studies have indicated a way to avoid that? That's correct. That's correct. We believe that the calcineurin inhibitors will prevent the radiocontrast-induced injury. That's a very significant finding. So I'd like to go back to the, uh, the second point you, you shared. You talked about the new pancreas. Can someone get pancreatitis more than once? Yes, and that's often the case about one quarter to one third of individuals who suffer from pancreatitis will have recurrence. And that recurrence may be because they have ongoing gallstones. The recurrence may be because their metabolic condition that caused pancreatitis in the first place has flared up again, or it may be for unclear reasons. But the statistics are that a substantial proportion of patients will have recurrence. So the new pancreas is just as prone to pancreatitis as the original pancreas. We think that, in fact, the recovered pancreas is somewhat protected against the severity of pancreatitis with recurrent attacks. And we'd like to understand why that's the case. 
And we think that there are some epigenetic switches that take place in the recovered pancreas that confer this level of protection. And we're in the process of understanding that using next-generation sequence technologies that correlate transcriptomics as well as ChIP-seq and other modalities. But what's the standard of care for pancreatitis now? Right now, it's similar to what it was 30 years ago with a few minor tweaks. One is that we recognized that it's important to provide optimized fluid therapy to patients in order to prevent the transition from uh, mild acute pancreatitis to severe acute pancreatitis. Secondly, pain control and nutrition are important uh, therapies. Nutrition, in particular, in severe cases, has a route that's delivered through the nose and into the intestine, and so that nutrition's delivered past the pancreas in a very slow trickle feeding. And then, of course, if patients develop complications of pancreatitis, such as necrosis of the pancreas, death of varying parts of the tissue, then that would require either endoscopic or surgical drainage. Dr. Hussein, where do you see the future in terms of your studies and clinical practices? Well, I'd like to see much of these discoveries reaching patients. And so this is why it's great to be at the McGowan Institute of Regenerative Medicine. It's great to be here at the University of Pittsburgh and at UPMC because this is really a hub for translational studies. We are actively engaged with mostly investigators here at the University of Pittsburgh in advancing that preclinical work that would hopefully lead to a IND at the FDA for a novel formulation to prevent post-ERCP pancreatitis as well as radiocontrast-induced nephropathy. The second, I think, big area of work is to come upon treatments. And we think that if we can better understand the epigenetics that takes place in the recovering pancreas, we can harness that for further therapies. An area that I haven't touched upon, but that is a painfully debilitating problem in pancreatic disorders is chronic pancreatitis. As opposed to acute pancreatitis, which is what we've talked about, chronic pancreatitis is where the gland, the pancreatic gland, has undergone destruction and is in many ways scarred and has a chronic inflammatory infiltrate that perpetually causes problems. And one of the biggest problems is pain, pain in chronic pancreatitis. And one of the hallmarks of chronic pancreatitis are the emergence of these calcifications that plug up the pancreatic ducts, prevent pancreatic juice from entering the intestine, and in so doing, they cause varying degrees of pancreatic ductal tension or hypertension. And we'd like to figure out why these calcifications form and how we can thwart them in order to retard the progression of pain and suffering in these patients with chronic pancreatitis. So there's been a lot of progress made. There's lots of uh, hurdles to cross yet. 
Because if we were having this discussion five years from now, what would you think would be the state of the art? I think the state of the art will be every patient that undergoes a ERCP that five years ago, <laughs> you know, five years from now, would carry that risk of pancreatitis, receives a novel radiocontrast formulation that prevents the pancreatitis. I think the state of the art is that there's a novel IV infusion that contains many of the pathway inhibitors that we've been talking about that prevents the kidney injury of pancreatitis. I think five years from now, I'd love to see a rescue therapy for those children who take asparaginase and five years ago had the problem of pancreatitis because of the use of that drug, and this rescue drug prevents the pancreatitis from developing, and that five years from now, we have a much, much better idea of how to retard the progression of chronic pancreatitis. Those are some admirable goals, and I wish you well. Dr. Hussein, uh, I thank you for joining us today, sharing your pioneering studies with us, and your vision for the future. We wish you well, you and your colleagues, as you move forward. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Remind our listeners you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And thank you for listening.